Hey, Jeff and Cole here from the Triart Academy Podcast, letting you know that this episode is brought to you by Rogue Knights Gaming, located in Kaiser, Oregon. Come play with us in one of our three family-friendly seating areas, and while you're here, load up your arsenal with the latest and greatest Magic the Gathering singles, D&D products, board games, and much more. So come on in. Plenty of tables, plenty of space, and a selection of cards that are only surpassed by their down-home family customer service. Rogue Knights Gaming. Heroes Wanted. Apply Within. And this is Jeff. Welcome on in to another episode of the Triard Academy Podcast, where it's always better to get good rather than get wrecked. And this time around, we have quite an episode for you. It's a topic of which that has been discussed at great length by others within the Magic community, from everyday players like us to the higher-ups at Wizards of the Coast. It's about the reserve list. Now, before you get bent out of shape, we're not going to take sides one way or the other. Rather, instead, we are going to give you not only a brief overview of what the reserve list is, but where we're going to differ from most people talking about it is by explaining where we see the future of the reserve list is going. And with that all said, let's dive right in and walk the planes. What is the reserve list? The reserve list is a list of cards that Watsi has promised not to reprint in any form. This was done in order to preserve the value of certain cards from time long ago. These cards came mainly from the Magic the Gathering's earliest sets, such as Alpha, Beta, Unlimited, Revised, Alliances, Urza's Saga, Arabian Nights, and many other blocks. The last set to have reserved list cards placed on them was Urza's Destiny. After that block, no other cards were added to the reserved list at the time of the creation of the list. At the time the reprint policy was created for the reserve list, there was a loophole in place where Wizards of the Coast said that they could reprint certain reserve list cards for premium product releases, such as in the cases of dual decks and from the vault product releases, just to name a few. However, eventually even this loophole would be closed. Now, a discussion about the reserve list would be incomplete without a discussion about its actual history. Let's get into that here. After the printing of 4th edition and Chronicles, people had an aneurysm about losing hundreds, and in some cases thousands of dollars, from the mass printing of these sets. So, Wizards of the Coast came up with a hot-fix solution for the situation, and on March 4th of 1996, they released an article in Issue 10 of The Duelist, which detailed this announcement. The announcement basically entailed that Wizards of the Coast had created a policy called the Reprinting Policy, which basically said that there were certain cards that would be put on this list and that these specific cards would never be reprinted again, provided that the cards fell within certain parameters. The original reserved list parameters were as follows. Number one, Alpha and Beta cards not appearing in 4th edition and Ice Age would be considered for the reserved list. Number two, all uncommon and rare cards from Arabian Nights and Antiquities that had not received a white border at the time would also be considered for the reserved list. Number three, 
all rares from Legends and the Dark that had not been reprinted with a white border were also considered for the reserve list. Then in July of 2002, the reserve list got a makeover of sorts. For the 2002 revision of the reserve list, Wizards stopped adding cards to the reserve list. Additionally, commons and uncommons from limited edition were removed because of overwhelming support to remove certain cards from the list. Further, no other cards would be removed from the reserve list, with the exception being Pharaoh's ban from the Homeland set, which got reprinted in 5th edition. Surprisingly enough, the card itself was not removed from the reserve list at the time of 5th edition until the 2002 revision had happened. Then, in March of 2010, the reserve list went under a second revision. After the printing of the dual deck, Prexia vs. the Coalition, and the release of From the Vault Relics, along with some other notable reprints in the form of Judge promo reprintings, certain cards got reprinted from the reserve list using a loophole in the policy as it related to premium foil cards. With the printing of some of these cards, many people got upset. Yet again, because of devaluing their prized collections. This prompted Wizards to alter the protocols related to the reserve list, stating that in the starting of 2011, there will be no more reprints for reserve list cards in any sort of terminate legal version, either in premium or non-premium form. So what does any of that have to do with the price of tea in China? Well, let's look at the issue at hand from a practical perspective. There are a couple notable aspects that are legal in nature here at play that deserve some consideration. The first of which is promissory estoppel and the second of which entails deceptive trade practices. Let's look at each item separately. First, let's look at deceptive trade practices. You'd think that this was a no-brainer concept, fairly common sense. You do business with a company based on the fact that some company promises to perform some service or provide some product in exchange for financial compensation. You pay them to do a job and they do the job for you. Fair enough, right? Right. Well, to protect the consumer from a business screwing over the consumer, a number of states have enacted some variant form of Texas's Deceptive Trade Practices Act of 1973, which basically states that if a company does not act scrupulously and the customer is financially harmed in some form or fashion, that the company can be sued for financial damages incurred in the course of doing business with the company in question. In specific, the law is supposed to protect against false, misleading, and deceptive business practices as well as unconscionable actions and breaches of warranty, among other things. For the sake of ease and comfort, since we don't want to turn this podcast into a law school class, we've left a link in the references section in the YouTube description if you want to look more into that. Oh, and a quick fun fact before we forget and while we're at it. The state of Washington, where Wizards is based out of, has a variation of this law on their books to protect consumers as well. However, even though Washington State statute also prohibits acts or practices that are considered unfair, 
the statute itself does not define unfair or the concept of unfair. And more importantly, Washington law has not yet defined the term to this day as of the time of this recording. Now that we've looked at the DTPA and deceptive trade practices as a concept to some degree, let's now look at the legal concept of promissory estoppel. Cornell University's Legal Information Institute defines promissory estoppel as the doctrine allowing recovery on a promise made without consideration when the reliance on the promise was reasonable and the promisee relied to his or her detriment. What that means on paper is this. Let's say for the sake of example, you the consumer buy from me, a retailer, a collection of Elvis Presley plates of which I, the retailer, and the creator of said collector's plates. Now, let's say I give you my word, whether by legal instrument or writing, or some other form of written blog post, or heck, even some sort of certificate of authenticity, that the merchandise that you have bought from me will never be manufactured again, and as such are considered, and or are implied, to be of rare distinction. Now that we have that covered, let's take this example one step further. Let's say for the sake of discussion that these one-of-a-kind collector's plates gained in popularity because of the quality of their design and have gained in popularity so much so that they have increased in financial value. Naturally, as a consumer, you'd be happy about your investment and or transaction and you'll continue to see your purchase of collector's plates gain in financial value. Bearing in mind what we have said so far, let's then say then, after a number of years go by, that the general public all of a sudden want more copies of these rare collector's plates because they're so rare that they've become one of a kind. Well, what am I to do as the retailer selling these plates? At this point, as a retailer and manufacturer, I'm in a bit of a painful quandary. On one hand, I made all of my customers back then a promise that these plates would never be released to the general public again, but on the other hand, I can't just ignore my potentially new customer base. Well, what am I to do? In this case, the retail company might create a new product to capture the public's interest such as a different set of collector's plates with different artwork, with no affiliation to the former set of collector's plates other than that they are of the same artist and that I, the manufacturer, am responsible for manufacturing and designing these new collector's plates. Effectively, what you have is a functional reprint of a time-honored classic, right? Well, that same premise applies to magic, and in our next section, we'll discuss that in more detail. Every so often, wizards will make a card that is so considerable in power level that they won't be able to stop the momentum of their own artistic avalanche. In today's magic, we see that here in the form of functional reprints. Let's go over some recent examples in the Ixalan block to see this in action. Storm the Vault, Tolarian Academy. Growing Lights of Itlamok, Gaia's Cradle, Legion's Lantine, 
Keljorn Outpost, Arguel's Blood Feast, Diamond Valley. But how about in magic somewhat more distant history? We can look at those too. Hypergenesis. That is a functional reprint of Eureka. Days Undoing. A functional reprint of Time Twister. Poffery Nodes. Drop of Honey. Eladomri's Call. Altar of Bone. Fauna Shaman. Survival of the Fittest. Pendril Miss. The Tabernacle at Pendril Vale. I hear that's over about 1500. <laughs> Wheel of Fate. Wheel of Fortune. I hear that's now over $200. Yeah, I know. All the money. Here's one for you. No profusion. Recycle. That's a pretty good one, huh? Almost definitely. And finally, let's even go back just a little further over the last couple years with Amonkhet and Battle for Zendikar blocks, right? We have Shelter Thicket and or Cinderglade. Functional reprint of Taiga. Uh, how about Irrigated Farmland and Prairie Stream? For Tundra. That's a functional reprint of Tundra. And then finally, Fetid Pools and Sunken Hollow. What's that a functional reprint of? Let's say, probably one of the most expensive of the old set. Mm -hmm. Underground Sea. Yes, sir. You know, and we can keep going on and on and so forth about this. But as the old proverb goes, necessity is the mother of invention. And the only thing that remotely dwarfs human curiosity and stupidity, frankly, is human ingenuity. So, what's the takeaway from all this? Short of Watsy going out of business, or for some reason such laws getting repealed on a state and federal level, the RL isn't going anywhere. But that's not necessarily a bad thing for newer players. Cards on the RL might never ever get a reprint by name, but what we are, and have been getting, are functional reprints of older, more powerful cards that may result in future fluctuations in the secondary market while maintaining investor confidence. But let's make no mistake about it. Magic the Gathering as a game has been around for 25 years plus now and is showing very few signs of stopping anytime soon. In the near, not so far future, we here at the Academy would not be surprised to see a completion of the Tango land cycle from Battle for Zendikar, nor would we be surprised if we saw the completion of the bicycle lands from Amonkhet as well. Additionally, it would not surprise us if we saw color-shifted variations of classic mechanics on other cards. For example, we saw Vault of Catlacon act as a pseudo-Tolarian Academy at Arrivals of Ixalan. Well, what if Watsi decided to do something very similar with that concept, but made it red mana instead of blue? I like it. How about a Gaius Cradle that produces white mana instead? Ah, uh, that, that seems pretty intriguing. Or, here's, here's another one. How about a Cabal Coffers in green that produces mana based on the number of forests you control? You're talking about uh, Sasea Oroki Ascendant on a land. Mm -hmm. That's dumb. I like that. You know, the possibilities really are endless now that you mention it. And really, it doesn't even have to end with mana. How about a functional reprint of Chains of Mephistopheles? Ooh, fun, yeah! How about a functional reprint of Survival of the Fittest that's in both black and green? Oh yeah, no, most definitely. 
Like you do, you saw that with Fauna Shaman. Oh yeah, most definitely. And even that's still mono green, but it can still be done with black green. Oh yeah, most definitely. That's a very black green ability. How about here's one for you? Better yet, how about a dredge creature with transfigure stapled on it? Dude, you're asking for too much. You know that, right? <laughs> <laughs> Look, yeah, I, I think you're asking for a little too much here. I mean, granted, Shenanigans is a card out of Modern Horizons. You're not wrong. But Morrow did mention that he thought Dredge was a busted mechanic. That storm scale is there for a reason. Oh, yeah, no, most definitely. <laughs> but uh, before we digress any further, with that all said, that's about all the time that we have for this episode of the Triart Academy podcast. Thanks for listening, and as always, feel free to leave a like or a comment, and feel free to share this video if you like our content. And as always, it's always better to get good rather than get wrecked.